the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's a piece yours truly hosted that I trust you will enjoy. Joined now by... Jake Sherman and Anna Palmer, they are with Politico, of course. Their new book, The Hill to Die On, is a bestseller. It is going wild everywhere. And if you tune into The Late Show tonight, you will see Jake and Anna on with Stephen Colbert. That's a long day, getting up early to talk to me, but you two are probably at home uh, and get it. Were you out last night, Jake, and on any of the Late Shows doing some promotion? No, we we had an event at Politics and Prose last night with Allie Jackson from NBC, and... Uh, uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a packed house, so that was very cool. Now, Anna, I, I want to begin with just something from Politico Playbook this morning, because it's so amazing, and it explains my bump for you. Pete Buttigieg booked a room for 50 people in Iowa last night. How many people showed up? Over 1,600. It's actually pretty incredible, given the fact that, as we know in Playbook this morning, he has been really slow to actually hiring up, so he doesn't have the operatives that usually are the people that juice up a crowd like that. This is pretty organic in terms of people showing up, wanting to get a sense of who Mayor Pete is. He, he is. he has Liz Smith, though, and she's one of the better comms people I've ever worked with in 30-plus uh, years in this business. So Liz will hold it together. Now let's get back to The Hill to Die On. The Hill to Die On is your brand-new book about the first two years under President Donald Trump on the Hill. So The Hill to Die On is the story of the failed health repeal. It is the story of the successful tax uh, reform and cut. It is also the... The story of the personal relationships between Nancy Pelosi and her caucus and the president between Speaker Ryan, Stephen Scalise, Kevin McCarthy and the Freedom Caucus. I think the person who comes off best in the whole book is Kevin McCarthy. But you've been doing this now, talking about the hill to die on for a week and a half. It's your second time around. What have you learned about people understanding the book, Jake? Because you always learn. I know as an author, you always learn how a book impacts and it's not always the plan you thought. Yeah, a few interesting things I think we've we've learned. I think Republicans believe we gave Democrats too much credit in winning in winning back the House when a lot of Republicans believe that uh, uh, Democrats got lucky and just rode a wave. So that's one interesting thing, and I think that's a, a valid criticism. I don't agree with it, but that's fine. Um, listen, I, I actually do think uh, I think this is a very fair book. I think it's a very uh, even-handed book. And I think a lot of people realize that. And I think what I realize is the, the extreme partisans are going to look at it and figure and just see what they want to see either way. Uh, but that's true with any book. But I, it's, it's, it's especially interesting when you when it's your book and it's something you've spent two years working on. But we've been very happy with the with the reception we've gotten. We've been it's, it's really cool to see. I think it's very fair. That's why we're having you back a second time to talk about the book. And how about you? What, what revelation has come to you by uh, via the reflection of the book? book in other people's minds. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we tried to have, uh, I think Jake would agree, a, a very realistic reported book. And I think a lot of people 
want optimism right now. I think they want to have an optimistic look. And I think what we tried to do is our job as reporters, not to have, you know, to, to have deals come together or, or, or advocate for deals to fall apart, but to truly chronicle what is happening. But I think there is that sense of the need for optimism right now when you talk to people around the country. Okay, so now let me talk to you about the specifics of the five people I mentioned, beginning with Kevin McCarthy. I mentioned him last week. I think he comes off in this book extremely well. I talked to him this week. I said, you're going to love the hill to die on. And uh, because he is presented as not only the right arm of the president on the hill, but also a very effective collector of votes and chits. Steve Scalise also comes off very well in this book. Have you heard from either of them, Anna? We've talked to a lot of people, uh, you know, around and in the book. I don't want to get into specific conversations, but I, I think, you know, a lot of one of the comments we have gotten from folks is they didn't realize how much access we were having. They knew we were talking to a lot of people, but even from kind of principals in the room, there was surprise about uh, how much detail we were able to get. Well, of course, it's remarkably reported. Jake, in the Kevin McCarthy-Steve Scalise relationship, these are two friends of the show. Kevin's a personal friend and has been for years. I am curious as to whether or not the dynamic which began to emerge in the Hill to Die On of com- competition between the two has been totally put away in the minority, where it's easier to be a caucus than it is to be a caucus in the majority. And you may want to explain to people why that is. Yeah, listen, it's much easier to stay together in the minority because all you have to do is say no to the Democratic leadership, which the Democrats did to Republicans. So in the minority is much easier. I would say one thing Anna and I have heard time and time again over the last couple uh, months, and I'm sure uh, Scalise and McCarthy would disagree, is that their meetings are quite chilly. I mean, Scalise was thinking about challenging Kevin McCarthy. He told me that on the record. This is not up for debate. Um, uh, he was thinking about it. He was planning it with his staffers. He thought uh, people around him thought, I don't want to say what he thought, but people around him definitely thought if Kevin lost the majority, how could he be the leader again? And they explored it. They had meetings where they talked about it. Scalise was very, very, very intent at a certain point in challenging Kevin. He backed off because it would have probably been the end of his career because McCarthy probably would have beaten him. Uh, I, I don't know that you could ever put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I think they will always look at each other warily. I think their relationship at the moment is fine, and I think it's fine at the moment because there's somebody else in the leadership who could be on the up and up, and that's Liz Cheney, the number three to McCarthy and Scalise, who has uh, raised some eyebrows with some of her votes that separate her from McCarthy and Scalise. So, listen, I think people delude themselves into believing that Congress within the party is just, is just a bunch of friends and allies. There's a lot of competition. These are intensely, intensely competitive people who uh, are always in competition with each other. Uh, and I got to wonder what it's like when you watch on a primary evening and you see an Eric Cantor or a Joe Crowley go down. These are people that you've spent a decade developing sources with. Joe Crowley was going to be the next speaker. Eric Cantor was going to be the next speaker. And they both lost their primary election. As a reporter, do you just feel like, oh, no, all my sources have just been wiped out by a tsunami? <laughs> you know, I will say uh, I spent a lot of time with and around uh, Joe Crowley in the lead up to his primary, really uh, because he was going to be one of these main characters potentially to you know, be the next speaker, certainly was in the Capitol. There's no question he and his staff were plotting and trying to figure out 
if he had a, a clear run to be, you know, to challenge Nancy Pelosi, he, he thought about it once before and decided not to, as we uh, write in the book. But yeah, it is. You know, you have these these people that you are covering for for years, and particularly with Jake was very, you know, did a lot of reporting on Eric Canner. I did a lot of reporting on Joe Crowley. That all of a sudden, you know, kind of in a snap of your fingers, they're gone, and you have to kind of look at. What does the new landscape look like? Well, and one of the new landscapes is the president in his Twitter feed. Uh, in Pol- in Pol- Politico playbook this morning, you guys quote the president's tweet last night, quote, I believe it will be crazy Bernie Sanders versus sleepy Joe Biden as the two finalists to run against and maybe the best economy in the history of our country and many other great things. I look forward to facing whomever it may be. May God rest their soul. And you're right. How may God rest their soul? I just mean that. I, I took that to mean that their campaigns will be disastrous. Uh, what do you make of the president's prediction, given your reporting in The Hill to Die on, Jay? Well, I, I think, to be honest with you, his prediction, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I think if you noted at the top, Pete Buttigieg is someone to seriously reckon with. It's funny because a couple days ago in Playbook, we said it, it looks like um, it, the president is bored, in a sense, with the with the, the current Democratic crop. He's not dumping on them. Then the last couple of days, he has dumped on them. I, I think, listen, I think the president views, and we we kind of talk about this in the Hill to Die on a bunch, but the president views everything through a very political lens. And he is intensely uh, interested in how things play on television, how they play in the media. We saw that throughout the book too many times to name. You have to buy the book to read, to know. But uh, he really, really views things through a political lens, through a television lens, through a media lens. And, and I think that he uh, would love to run against Bernie or Joe Biden, but I'm not sure he's going to have that opportunity. And of the numbers that came out from his campaign team, compared with the numbers that are discussed in The Hill to Die On, the amount of money in this cycle is going to dwarf what was a large amount of money in the cycle in 2016. And all of those independent expenditure committees had better plan on doubling down their budgets because the the activation of the base is so intense that the four dollar donor is out there and they've given thirty million dollars to Trump and seventeen million dollars to Bernie and seven million dollars to Pete Buttigieg and it's just going to keep going right. Yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting, and I think what we found in the book was you know, Republicans who saved the House raised and spent more than a hundred million dollars. And they had a pretty dismal showing uh, at the end of the day after the election of 2018. So money is clearly not going to be the issue in terms of, you know, it's flooding the zone. The real question, I think Republicans are going to have to answer uh, and are, are really questioning is where are they on health care? Where are they on some of these key issues on immigration? You know, that the president loves to talk about it. But there are a lot of suburban voters and women voters who were turned off by that in 2018. And I think there's a lot of nervousness and concern among Republican operatives about how do they get those voters back. Jake Sherman, I'm a Moneyball uh, enthusiast. I understand how Moneyball worked in baseball. I understand how it's been applied in the NFL and other settings, which is you look for advantages that were overlooked and you exploit them. I think the Republicans ran such a bad campaign in 2018 that the Moneyball favors them, that they are able now to recruit, they're able to pick off, and they're being helped by AOC and Representative Omar and other unusual situations so that the money ball favorites are the hill are the republicans in 2020 your reaction before the break we got about 45 seconds yeah i agree i agree that that's what they think and i agree that they believe there are a bunch of 
soft Democrats, meaning Democrats in, in Republican leaning seats that they could recruit the right Republican and they had a bad candidate. Look in, in Texas with John Culberson. They think that's a seat Republicans should hold. Pierce Bush, who's George H.W. Bush's grandson, is thinking about running for that seat now. So a candidate like that might be interesting to see. That all said, they have to compete against a Republican donor base that's going to be uh, giving to President Trump. And we'll see if, if Republicans are able to give to House candidates and House committees with the same fervor that they would need to to win back the House. But if they do win back the House, they've got to get their act together. Jake Sherman and Anna Palmer, their new bestseller, The Hill to Die On, is at Amazon. It's in bookstores everywhere. It is a riveting, compulsively readable book about the goings-on of the last two years in Congress as it related to President Trump. Wonderful miniature portraits of everybody involved. I want to focus in on two in our brief time left. And and those are the two Freedom Caucus warriors. And I know Mark Meadows, he's a friend. I know uh, Jim Jordan, he's a longtime friend. I like them both. Um, I believe the Hill is big enough for them all to get along on. And Jim Jordan was going to run for speaker. He was going to definitely do it. And now they're all together in the same room. And I think it's possible for people to get along and like each other. There are a couple of harsh quotes about Mark Meadows in here. I've just never seen that, uh, Anna Palmer. I've always seen kind of an affable, open-handed Paul. I mean, he's there to, to win. Yeah, I think, listen, I, I think Mark Meadows is, is all of those things that you, you just said. He's affable. He yeah, is quick with a quote. I think he is friendly with the press. Uh, but he certainly, uh, in his role in the Freedom Caucus and otherwise, particularly when John Boehner was speaker, was really a thorn in the side of leadership, trying to stop them from doing things. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of... Uh, and even members who feel like he can at times be asshole to your face, uh, but dishonest and, and not actually showing his true motive. That's what comes. You know, I was surprised to read that. I was not surprised to find that a lot of people, including the president, think Jim Jordan is intense. Jake Sherman, because I've done events with Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan is intense. I mean, he doesn't wear the coat because the buttons will pop off. Yeah, that's probably true. I think they're two of the most interesting people in, in modern politics. They're two of the most pow- powerful Republicans in the country because they have the president's ear and they know what he wants. And they know it, depending on the instance, how to achieve it. I, I think Meadows, by and large, comes across, across pretty good in the book. And he comes across as somebody who has an, an immense power because he's able to. You know, they, ha- they say something interesting, Hugh, which is a, a fascinating view into how they think. Jim Jordan says, we're conservatives, but we act as a union, because that's how you have power in the House of Representatives. They have a block of 20 people, which means they control everything, because 20 people is enough enough uh, power between uh, success and failure. And so they help hold their people together, and with unity, as Nancy Pelosi always says, comes power. Yeah, they, and, they, uh, you, do you guys ever, you're too young for Looney Tunes. Remember the Martian character would come down and, and bedevil bugs? That's just an yeah, homage. Yeah. Marvin yeah. the Martian, that's just an homage. And they somehow keep just an homage in the Freedom Caucus, so that's good. Here's my last comment. Juliet Elprin, in an otherwise glowing review of The Hill to Die On, at the end mildly chided you for telling the book from an almost exclusively inside the Beltway perspective. Well, actually, that's what I want from you, too. I-, I want the inside the Beltway perspective, but I'm curious if you share with me my overriding concern, which is the institution is so doggone insular. So if the idea 
idea isn't hatched by Hill staff and peddled by Hill staff and nurtured by Hill staff, it can't be a good idea. That happened on health care. It happened on tax reform. I told Kevin Brady again and again they were going to lose uh, light red districts in California and New York if they capped the, the real estate and state and local tax deduction at ten grand, And they did because people built their lives around it, but I couldn't get through, and I talked to them directly, and they kind of, they humor you, right? I'm used to being humored by members of Congress when I have policy ideas, but they don't take them seriously because you're not on the Hill. Jake, and then Anna, your, your thoughts on this? No question about it. I think the Hill is an insular place, but I understand Juliet's uh, uh, criticism, but we're writing about the insular place. That, wow, that's the community we're writing about. We also didn't consult psychiatrists and, and physicians and a whole other group of people that we could have consulted about it. But you're absolutely right. It's an insular place that too often looks to the inside for ideas. But that is the ecosystem we were writing about. And, and I want to close by asking you about the AOC con- uh, caucus. Yesterday, Nancy Pelosi said it's five or so people. It's actually more than five or so people. Is the AOC caucus to the Democrats what the Freedom Caucus was to the Republicans in the first two years of the Trump presidency, the insurmountable obstacle to cohesion and coalition? I don't think it's there yet. I do think it will be interesting to watch it uh, in the coming months. You You have to remember, the Freedom Caucus was born out of the specific goal of a group of members who wanted to stop its own leadership from doing things. And, you know, AOC, while she has a following, certainly isn't organizing against Speaker Pelosi. I think sometimes, you know, she's able to push her ideas, certainly the Green New Deal, other things like that, and they get momentum because of her Twitter following and, you know, kind of her following in general by the media. But so far we have not seen them use or obtain power in the same way that the Freedom Caucus was very effective at doing. Jake Sherman, Anna Palmer, congratulations on the Hill to die on. Thank you for two wonderful interviews. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.